The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was born in China, in what is now eastern Henan province, and which was then the center of Chinese civilization. This was in the year 178, unless it was the year 170. We are traveling back into the mists of time today as we try to discern genuine history and undisputed authorship and separate that out from historiography, legend-making, and first-person impersonations by later poets. But we do have some tantalizing historical details about her life, suggesting that an extraordinary woman lived an extraordinary life. With cultural and poetic richness combined with great hardship and a family story worthy of a Greek tragedy. We're talking about the forgotten Chinese poet Tsai Yen, also known as Wenji, today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join us today. Wow, what a month. We started things with a Mesopotamian bang with our look at the poet Enedwana. That was last Thursday. We're doing Thursday themes here on the History of Literature. This month's theme, Forgotten Women of Literature. Believe me when I tell you there are more than four candidates for this. I'm already planning a part two to come in a subsequent month. But today is a good one for our first month, Zayan, a.k.a. Wenji, who lived back in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. She had an amazing life, and there are some amazing poems written in her name. The authorship of those poems is somewhat disputed, which we will dive into after we hear some listener emails. What else do we have for you this September? We had Ovid on Monday. My goodness, maybe we should just stop there. And Adwana plus Ovid throw in Cyan. How much more do you want, people? <laughs> How greedy can you possibly be? But of course, I'm kidding. We've got much more to come this month, including some Mike Palindrome, we hope. He's toiling away. I'll probably do 16 episodes in the meantime before he gets one to us. But that's what life is like when you're only a vice president, as I am. It's good to be the king. Good luck, President Mike. And I hope you're not smashed beneath a pile of books and your microphone. So let's do this. Let's hear some listener email. Oh, oh, we have some good ones today. Wait until you hear them. And then we will dive into the literary legend of Zayan. All that coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. First email is from Austin. Subject, how Eat Los Vevo helped me quit smoking, parentheses, or an appreciation. Dear Jack, as you are probably guessing from the subject line, this email is inspired by your recent email responses. Your response to the email about mispronouncing Salinas, and from the Boccaccio episode, your advice for writing emails. But I'd like to say that I've been thinking about writing this email for a while now on account of my experience listening to your podcast during the pandemic quarantining. To get to the point, your episodes with Mike have been a source of comfort for me during this quarantine, or more specifically, listening to them has been one of the few things I've been able to do that alleviate my loneliness. This quarantine has been a rather lonely time for me. I live with my dad, and don't get me wrong, I love him and we get along well, but we don't really have anything in common, and so we don't talk much. We're more like two ships passing in the night. For this reason, I've felt like I've been living alone. I haven't spent time with friends on account of health precautions. I stay in touch with friends over the phone or Zoom, but it is not the same as seeing them in person. At first, all the free time at home was great for reading. I read a good handful of books in the first month or two, but after a while, I lost my enjoyment of reading. Because I am so eager to be able to go out in the world normally, sitting in a chair for long stretches is unappealing. Also, I could not stay committed to a book, starting and then soon putting aside books. I got about 800 pages through Don Quixote, which I chose as my big novel for quarantine, but have not read it for a month or more now. I suppose at some point when I was feeling down about being separated from my friends, I thought, you know, this book doesn't make me feel any better. As much as I love reading and books, there comes a time when I need to be able to put a book down and see a friend. Listening to your episodes with Mike is probably my new favorite activity. I prefer to save them for when I eat, as I almost always eat alone, and would much rather listen to your podcast than watch TV or something like that. My favorite time to listen to one of your episodes is when I go for a late-night run to In-N-Out Burger. I listen while eating in my car, and while waiting in the drive-thru. A second favorite time is while eating cereal at midnight. I've probably re-listened to every episode with Mike twice during this quarantine. I really enjoy your solo episodes, of course, and your interviews with guests, but your episodes with Mike have a special quality to them, which is your and Mike's friendship. I enjoy talk shows and interviews in general, and so when there is a friendship or very good rapport between conversationalists, as you and Mike have, then it makes for engaging and insightful conversation. 
In short, listening to two good friends discuss books is very soothing and stimulating, especially since I feel there is a lot of overlap between my taste in books and yours and Mike's. Better than any books or movie, laying down with a cup of tea to listen to your podcast with Mike helps me not feel so lonely, as part of the fun is hearing two friends connect over books. So thank you for your podcast and for your shows with Mike, and thank you to Mike as well. But just to be clear that I am not in agreement with Mike over his opinion of Don Quixote, I'd like to tell you that I have every intention of finishing that book. In fact, I think it is delightful, and I'll have you both know that the very incident in the novel that had Mike give up, as I recall, Don Quixote projectile vomiting directly into Sancho Panza's mouth, made me laugh harder than any other book has. Furthermore, I find the way Don Quixote and Sancho Panza pick themselves up after every defeat, every episode seems to end with them brutally beaten up, and Don Quixote must be down to only a few teeth by page 100, this perseverance I find to be very endearing. The way Don Quixote is never discouraged, along with Sancho Panza, affectionately, if reluctantly, staying by his side. In fact, I think one could argue that friendship is a major theme of the book. Granted, I have yet to finish it. In part one, at least, a couple of the interpolated stories involve broken friendships, which to me seem like foils to Don Quixote's and Sancho Panza's friendship, as if Cervantes was showing the ways friendship can break apart. But through Don Quixote and Sancho, we see also how friendship can endure. Early in the novel, Don Quixote says squires should be silent and off to the side, but he always forgets his own idea of this, as he and Sancho filled many pages with conversation. Anyway, thank you again for your podcast. I hope you, your family, and your friends are safe and healthy, and I hope the same for Mike, his family, and his friends. Sincerely, Austin. P.S. I did read Zeno's Conscience, but it didn't really click with me. I can't remember why. It was a few years ago when I read it. Maybe I had concocted some expectation for it that didn't match with the novel. Anyway, I'll probably give it another try one day. Oh, thank you, Austin. I found your email very moving. I'm glad that Mike and I have been there for you during this quarantine on those late night runs to In-N-Out Burger or at midnight eating cereal. I agree. I really enjoy the conversations I have with all my guests both those I know and those I am just meeting for the first time. I've had several of my friends on the show, and some of them more than once. But Mike and I do have a bit of a connection that's probably different from the others. I've known him longer than any other guest. And we lived in the dorm together, and we lived in New York at the same time for a few years, and we have always had a lot in common. And although we disagree on some things, I think we agree in a kind of general way about our approach to life. I'm glad the friendship comes through. There's really not enough friendship in the world, is there? It's like love. The world can always use more. Next up is from Marshall. Now, I should say, I already read a follow-up from Marshall. I read the follow-up email, so I've already responded to his request about translation. I'll go light on that here. I got my files a little out of order. I meant to respond. I meant to, res meant to respond to this one, or at least this one first. This was the first email, but I'm going backwards here. Okay. Subject, further greetings from New Zealand. Uh, where are we here? Ah, Kai Ora, Jack. I've been meaning to email you for some time, but as often happens, life has a habit of getting in the way. 
but the recent email you received from my fellow Kiwi, Drew, has inspired me to finally contact you and, most importantly, to thank you for your podcast. I discovered the history of literature last year and I'm slowly working my way through the episodes, listening whenever I can find some quiet time on my own or while I am busy around the house. Like Drew, I had limited interest in serious literature, although I always had a book on the go. But your podcast has introduced me to so many amazing authors and novels. You managed to bring them, and in many cases their backstories, to life in a way that has reinvigorated my passion for fiction. I am trying to mix up reading some of the classics and more contemporary novels you have recommended. I won't pretend that I understand them all at a deep philosophical level, and there are a few that I have struggled with and didn't finish, Heart of Darkness for one, but I will go back to it one day. I have forced myself to read more slowly, and I find myself rereading passages that grab me, taking enormous pleasure from those discoveries. Based on your and Mike's recommendations, I have a bookshelf containing, among others, Toni Morrison, Dostoevsky, Jane Austen, and of course, The Magic Mountain, waiting for me. I love Drew's idea of a trans-Tasman battle, but can I suggest one more Kiwi must-read? Maurice G's Plum. My favorite New Zealand novel, although to my shame, there are many Kiwi classics that I have still to read. And while I am here, like all of your correspondents, I have a couple of ideas for future podcasts. It's so easy sitting here in New Zealand suggesting topics when you are the one who does all of the work. How about the best Western novels of all time? For some reason, I find myself drawn to stories of the American frontier. Blood Meridian, Lonesome Dove, which I have just finished, leaving a small hole in my life. The Sun, Days Without End are all recent reads. I haven't heard you talk much about the Wild West, so I would love to hear your and maybe Mike's views. And a podcast about what makes a great translation would be fascinating. What is the role of a translator? How much of their own voice is acceptable or desirable? If foreign language novels are retranslated every generation, will they stand the test of time and find new readers better than those in our native language which don't undergo the same reinvention? That should give you plenty to get on with. Thank you yet again for doing an amazing job and bringing so much pleasure to so many people. Best wishes from New Zealand. Marshall. Marshall, thank you so much for your email. As I mentioned at the outset of it, I responded to your second email first, which was also about translation. I meant to respond to this one instead. But anyway, here we go. I'm remedying the error. (laughs) I'm not ashamed to admit that I'm not perfect. You are welcome to disagree, of course. I won't presume to stop you from having an opinion. So, In addition to translation, let's talk about the Wild West. Yes, I would love to do a show on Westerns and the Western genre, what happened to it in films as well as in books. It's shrinking. It kind of shrank right before our eyes. And if that's our topic, Cormac McCarthy is practically a must-do, given the number of requests we've had for him and his works. Speaking of which, our next email comes from Denmark. Subject, Cormac McCarthy and Infinite Jest. Dear Jack, thanks for hosting a great podcast. Would it be possible to have an episode dedicated to the works of Cormac McCarthy, this underrated yet fantastic American writer? When I first read The Road, I was completely blown away by his unique and original way of writing, and it showed me the power of literature and what it can really do. I know we are many who would love to hear more about this great author. His methodology when writing and his works. By the way, 
What happened to the special episode about Infinite Jest? Can we expect that anytime soon? Best regards, Friedrich, a devoted listener from Copenhagen, Denmark. Ah, yes. Frederick. Frederick. Should I say Friedrich? Frederick. Infinite Jest is on the way, and I suppose Cormac McCarthy is too. Thank you for the email, and good luck to you out there in Copenhagen. Okay, let's get started with the incredible story of Tsai Yen after this. remind us that we are traveling back to the mists around the Yellow River Valley and the historical mists of a long-ago time. Let's start with the incredible life story of Tsai Yen. We'll confirm what we can, then we'll hear the poems that are attributed to her. We'll confirm what we can there, too. Spoiler alert, we can't confirm much. And then we will have some thoughts about the legend that's grown up around her and what that means. So... Let's start with Tsai Yen's father, Tsai Yong, who was not just a teacher or scholar, but one of the great scholarly figures in Chinese history. We are in the Han Dynasty period. Tsai Yong was born in 132 AD. He was a calligrapher, an astronomer, a mathematician, and a musician, well known for his playing of the pitch pipes, which he learned from Hu Guang, who was a high-ranking official in the Han Imperial Court. Tsai Yong also played the drums. The senior eunuchs who surrounded the emperor admired Tsai Yong's skill as a musician, and they recommended him to the emperor as someone who should be in the court. And Tsai Yong was called for, and he was on his way, but he didn't really want to go. So he feigned an illness so he could go home to study in seclusion, which he did for 10 years. Kind of an early Ferris Bueller, except he was a scholar, and instead of a day off, he got ten years off to do what he loved best. Ten years of studies, we can see what kind of person Tsai Yong was. He was well known for his literary skills, and he was eventually appointed to a position as a clerk, and then put in charge of editing and collating the poetry and other texts in the library in the capital city. Things started to get a little tumultuous then, politically, with warring tribes, who were coming to invade the Han strongholds, and Tsai Yong made it a point to have the five Confucian classics engraved in stone. The fear, as he put it, was that the warring parties were trying to alter the classics to support their views. His advice about engraving the classics in stone to fix their meaning carried the day, and the five books were engraved in stone, and they became canonical, known as the Shi Ping Stone Classics. Tsai Yong also often, sorry, he often feuded with the senior eunuchs as he thought they had too much influence in politics. They were a powerful group, though, and they would argue back, and Tsai Yong's political fortunes rose and fell. And then around 170 or 178, 
The birth date, as far as we know, is a couple of different possibilities here. Tsayong had his daughter, Tsayen, and things for the next couple of decades in China got even more tumultuous as the political fuse with the eunuchs gave way to more serious threats to the empire coming from invasions by hostile forces. This is the backdrop for Tsayen. She grew up learning calligraphy, music, and poetry from her father. When she was 16, she married a man from the highly learned Wei family, but her husband died soon after their marriage. And then, in a great tragedy for Tsayen, the barbarian tribes invaded, her father was jailed, and she herself was abducted and taken away on horseback. For the next 12 years, she lived among the barbarians. And remember, when we say this, when we use the term barbarians, we're basically using the Han Dynasty's definitions here. They were a nomadic tribe that took Tsayen. She was married off to a chieftain and bore him two sons. After these long years in exile, political upheaval happened again, Back at her home, a new warlord named Cao Cao came to power, and he had been one of Tsai Yong's students and remembered both him and his daughter fondly. He arranged for her return, and so she was finally exchanged back. She could return to her society, but she had to leave her two children behind. There are three surviving poems attributed to her. Two of them have the same name, the Poem of Sorrow and Resentment, and one can see why. It's an astonishing story. First to be a widow, then to be abducted and forced to marry a barbarian, to bear two children, then to return home, only to have to leave those young children behind. If that weren't enough, she remarried again when she was back at home, and her husband was sentenced to death. This time, she intervened, going into Cao Cao's room and begging for her husband's life. The story runs that she said to him, "'Will you find me a fourth husband?' And he said, I would spare his life, but the orders for execution have already been given. And Cyan said, You would let a man die for the cost of a horse and a rider? You can see the kind of woman we're talking about here. Morally superior, devastatingly possessed by sorrow and hardship. The sort of woman who, to whom people bow down out of respect for the experiences that she's had and the deep despair that she has righteously endured. There's one other piece of her biography we should cover. The story goes that Cao Cao was lamenting the loss of Tsai Yong's library, which had had 4,000 volumes of poetry and scholarship, and which had been destroyed. A later biographer of Tsai Yen wrote that Cao Cao called for Tsai Yen and said, I have heard, madam, that in your home there used to be a great many books. Do you still remember them? Wenji replied, The books bequeathed by my late father totaled some 4,000 volumes, but they have been scattered and ruined. None are left. Those that I can recite from memory number only a little more than 400. Cao Cao then said, I will now order ten clerks to go to your residence, madam, to write them down. Wenji said, I have heard that propriety requires men and women to be separate without handing things to each other. I beg to be given paper and brushes so that I can write them down, either in standard script or in cursive script, as you may command. Subsequently, she wrote out the texts and presented them, and no words were missing or incorrect. Something a little neat about the story. 
To say no words were missing or incorrect tells us that Cyan had an amazing memory, but how do we know that? How was that checked? There's a little bit of legend-making when it comes to stories of Cyan. This was a biography that was written hundreds of years after her death. And there's some legend-making when it comes to her as a poet. I'll just tell you up front that scholars do not agree that the three poems written in her name were actually written by her. The poems don't appear until later, and we don't have a lot of contemporary evidence for her authorship. Some scholars say that she wrote all three, but that's the minority view. Some Most people say she wrote one or two, or none at all. That all of them were written by later poets who were writing in her voice. We don't know. We don't have the answer to that question. What we have are the poems themselves, which might have been written by her or a few hundred years after her. But in any case... They're very old to us. It's a bit like Homer. Yes. Was he one man? Yes. Was he blind? Yes. Was he many people? Was he even a man? We call him Homer. And we read the Iliad and the Odyssey and do the best we can. But we do know that Cyan existed. There are some historical accounts that confirm not only that she was a daughter of Cyan and a musician and calligrapher as he was, but that she was abducted for 12 years and returned without her two children. Some later biographers sniffed at this later fact. Some Tang Dynasty moralists said, oh, look, she shouldn't have gotten married when she was gone. She shouldn't have had those children. She shouldn't have left them. Look at the contradiction. She claims to be moral. She claims to be righteous in these poems, and look at the contradictions in her life. This in my opinion, is abominably wrong-headed. Come on. Blaming her for any of those actions is to really misunderstand the role that human beings play during moments of historical upheaval. I don't think, based on what we know, that she had much of a choice about any of those things that happened to her. And it's that fact, the atrocity of that fact, that either inspired her to write her poems or that inspired others, using her life story as the example, to write these poems. So, it's, well, let's take a step back. The mother-child bond is probably the strongest possible human tie. It has a force that is elemental, but other elemental forces are strong too. The force of feeling at home, or of nostalgia for home, longing for home, or of feeling the strangeness of being in exile, encountering an alien culture and being forced to marry and endure sexual relations within that alien culture. We don't really know how she felt about being in that culture, especially if it was not her who wrote these poems. But whoever wrote the poems recognized the capacity for pain and suffering and great human emotion, both due to the abduction and the subsequent return were the one thing that she had hoped for in this legend for all of these years turned into a fresh new nightmare as she lost her children. So let's listen to one of these three poems. Let's keep in mind that this, is, this poem is about one-third what it should be. First, there would have been music to accompany it. So you can imagine the zither or another Similar instrument. I read it was a zither somewhere. But we don't have that music anymore. It didn't survive. I don't mean recordings of it, obviously. I mean, whatever composition the poet used, whatever notes or melodies or whatever, are not part of what we have. It's a bit like Sappho that way. But the biggest absence for us, because frankly, 
I'm not sure how important the music is when it's not clear that Cyan wrote the music. So I would say that the biggest absence in what I'm about to read is that it's going to be an oral reading only, and Chinese poetry has a strong visual aspect to it. For people who can read Chinese, the character itself is a medium for Chinese poetry. I think I've talked about this more than once, so I'll try to be brief, although I would recommend that you all read the work of Ezra Pound and Ernest Fenelosa, which changed my life. You could say I read it when I was in Taiwan, and I went mad for Chinese and Chinese poetry. You can see the pictures and the roots of the pictures, the radicals that form the pictures, and the rhymes and the characters themselves. I don't mean verbal rhymes. I mean that the characters can rhyme with one another. For example, there's a character for sun that looks a little like the sun. It's sort of a squarish circle. And there's a character for tree in which you can see the trunk of the tree and the branches. These are the words for sun, the words for tree, but you can see the depiction of them, the visual representation of them in the characters themselves. And then the character for East is the character for Tree in front of the character for Sun, as if East is the sun rising up behind the tree. If you're a poet, and these are the tools you have, these words, you might use them in a way that the reader can use to latch on to these deep embedded meanings. Sun tree, east. For us, those are three sounds. For the Chinese, it might be three sounds, but there also are the pictures themselves which can chime against one another. Save that thought for a moment. I will return to it after we hear this poem. Okay, so this is one of the two poems called Song of Sorrow and Resentment, attributed to Tsai Yan. When the Han at the end was losing its power, Dong Zhuo upset the heavenly order. With his mind on the throne and the sovereign's murder, he first killed able and virtuous men. He forced the court to move to the old capital and seized the ruler to strengthen himself. Everywhere within the four seas, loyalist armies rose, wishing together to subdue the wicked man. Dong Zhuo's hosts moved east. Their metal armor glittered in the sun, the people of the plains were weak. The onrushing troops were all Hu and Chang barbarians. They invaded the countryside, besieged cities and towns. Wherever they went, everything was destroyed. None survived the slaughter. Corpses and skeletons propped each other. On their horses' flanks, they hung the heads of men. On their horses' rears, they carried off women. Far west, they galloped through the pass. The distant road was full of perils and hazards. As we looked back into the dim distance, our insides rotted. Let me just pause there. What a shift. What a shift that is from this history, which describes in this grand kind of bird's eye view, omniscient view of what happened and what happened when the barbarians arrived and how they besieged the cities and towns, and then to say that they hung the heads of men on the horses' flanks and carried off women, and then to say, as we, as we looked back into the dim distance, suddenly we know this is a speaker, this is a person, this is someone who was on the back of one of those horses. We are right there with her. Poem continues. 
The captives, numbering a myriad, were not allowed to camp together. Some had blood relations in the group. They wished to converse, but dared not speak. If one was the least bit careless, they said at once, Kill those worthless captives. They should be put to the sword. We will not keep you alive. We did not care about our lives. With such unbearable vituperation, they beat us with sticks as they pleased. Outrage and pain fell on us together. By day we traveled, wailing and weeping. By night we sat, lamenting and moaning. We wished for death, but could not get it. We wished for life, but had no chance. What have we done against Blue Heaven to encounter this calamity? The border wasteland differs from China. Its people's mores lack righteous principles. They dwell in a land of much frost and snow. Winds of the steppe rise in spring and summer, flapping as they blow on my clothes, whistling as they enter my ears. Stirred by the times I longed for my parents, moaning and sighing without end. When travelers arrived from abroad, hearing about it always made me happy. I would meet them and ask for information, but none of them were from my home. Unexpected luck fulfilled my wish. My flesh and blood sent for me. I myself was released, but had in turn to abandon my children. Though our hearts were tied together with heaven's strings, I realized we would be separated without hope of reunion. In life and death we would forever be parted. I could not bear to take leave of them. The children came forward and embraced my neck. They asked, Where are you going, mother? They say mother is to go away. How can you ever come back? Mother has always been loving and kind. Why do you now become unkind? We are not yet grown up. What shall we do if you don't care for us? The sight of this collapsed my insides. My confusion grew to madness. I wailed and wept, caressed them with my hands. We were about to depart, but I hesitated. Companions, captured together with me, saw me off and bade me farewell. They envied me, the only one to go home. Their wailing shouts were heartbreaking. For my sake, the horses stood still in hesitation. For my sake, the carriage wheels did not turn. The onlookers all sighed and sobbed. The travelers also wept and choked down their tears. Away, away, cut off from those I love. A hurried journey, daily more remote, far, far, three thousand miles. When will we ever meet again? As I thought of the children issued from my womb, my breast for their sake was torn apart. When I got home, my family was all gone. Not even cousins were there. The city walls had become wooded hills. In the courtyard, brambles and mugwort were growing. White bones, I knew not whose, lay everywhere, and none were covered. I went out the gate. There was no human sound. Jackals and wolves howled and barked. Forlorn, I faced my lone shadow. In dismay, my insides were ruined. I climbed and looked into the distance. My soul and spirit suddenly flew away. But when it seemed to me my life was ending, the people near me were magnanimous toward me. 
For their sake I force myself to go on seeing and breathing. Yet though I live, what is there to live for? I have entrusted my life to a new man. I give my all to carry on. In my wanderings, I become cheap and low. I live in constant fear of being rejected again. A human life, how long does it last? I shall harbor grief to the end of my years. Mm. It's a heartbreaking story, beautifully told. Did Cyan write it in these words? We don't know that for sure, but somebody did. And somebody put them to the Chinese calligraphy. We know Cyan was a woman of literature. That much is established. She was one of us, people. If you're listening to this podcast, you're a kindred spirit. And we know that this happened to her, roughly, in broad strokes. We know she was torn from her home. And then when she returned to her home, she was torn from her children. We know her life was filled with sorrow and resentment. Someone gave us these lines. Someone tapped into what a woman of literature would feel or felt and shared it with us. I'm going to give the last line here to the miracle of the Chinese written word. As I said, this changed my life once upon a time. You hear sometimes about people who become addicted to the guitar or to playing chess and they immerse themselves into it and they study it and that becomes their world for a period of time becomes more real to them than the real world. That was kind of what it was like in my days in Taiwan. I had my motorcycle and I was driving to teach here and there and everywhere, whoever would have me. And I had amazing students with whom I would spend an hour or two each week talking about life and literature and everything else. And then I would read Ezra Pound and Fenelosa and whatever else I could get my hands on. But the Pound and Fenelosa are what matter here today. I read them to see how they envied Chinese. Well, Fenelosa described it, but Pound envied it, envied what Chinese poetry could do because of the language. He envied those characters, those ideograms. They were for him like a statue, a sculpture, I guess I should say. A sculpture plus poetry, sculpted poetry. Pound loved sculpture, by the way, and so with his example in mind, the example of his envy, I set about exploring for myself just what Chinese could do with hour after hour of flashcards and books and spending time just diving into those characters until I could see them with the kind of naturalness that any Chinese or Taiwanese school child could, except maybe I was looking at them slightly differently from my perspective, coming at them as an adult. Maybe they were different for me. My cousin was doing the same thing. He had been doing it longer, and he would tell me about dreams he had where he was climbing a character and running across it and sliding down the other side, or that there were great giant characters stomping toward him like armies across a field, and I would start to have visions like that too. And when you'd see something familiar in a word, one of the repeated radicals, you'd feel a kind of excitement not just because you recognized it and because it would be easier to memorize that new character now, but because it would unlock the meaning in a whole new way. Oh, east, the sun rising behind a tree. I get it. I'll remember the word east. I'll remember the word sun. I'll remember the word tree. And when I see this word, this little picture of a word, a little part of my mind will think, yes, it's morning. I'm up early gaze into the distance, I see the sun coming up behind a tree, 
just like it did thousands of years ago for the people who formed this language and for all the soldiers and physicians and fishermen and farmers and teachers and students and peasants and princes and poets who came after. There it is, East. The word explodes for me like a tiny fireworks display. Sun, tree, East, world, everyone, me, history and natural science and the beauty and joy of being alive. There in that little exploding word. It's my dad driving me to the basketball game in the dark wintry morning for the team that he coached and stopping off at the donut store and seeing the sun peeking up behind the tree in the parking lot while the Ford chuffs away with my nostrils seized by the cold, biting air. It's coming out of the hut in Thailand on the hot morning, gazing out at the dim beach, waiting for the day to begin. Sun, tree, what could be more elemental? And yet, it does mean east. East is elemental, too. And it's connected to sun and tree. East is where you see the sun rise. That daily miracle. Okay, so why does this matter for Tsai-Yen? The reason is a famous one. You probably know where this is headed. One of the easiest Chinese characters to learn is the one for man. It's two strokes, giving you a quick stick figure of a man with two legs. You see those two legs running around? See them inserted into other words. There may be something human involved. It's a stripped-down man, headless, just two legs, and a kind of a body. Why do you need the rest? Two legs tells you that it's human, right? It's not a cow, it's not a horse, it's not a pig. Just two legs. A man. But there are women on this earth, too. What do they look like? If we need to scroll it quickly and distinguish it from a man, well, it's two legs with curves. That's basically what it is. If you look at the Chinese character, it's a shapely person, more shapely than the man. Two legs with some hips. That's what it looks like to me, anyway. And whenever I see that character, I think, ah, yes, this is the lifeguard who astounded me when I was a little boy, seeing her in her swimsuit. It's the aunts and daughters of the world. It's the elegant nightclub singers. It's the women who work in the office the helpful women who can get information for you, the kindly ones, the angry ones, the vicious and spiteful ones, the doctors and nurses and documentary filmmakers and professors and prosecutors and princesses, the sandwich makers, the warriors, the queens, the mothers, the moms. Here they are, represented by this little shape, not stick men, legs with hips, a little more shape. And the character for child is another set of strokes that you learn when you learn Chinese. You learn it fast because it gets used a lot. And so there comes that glorious moment when you see the word that combines the two. The radical for woman and the radical for child combined into a single character with both of those two characters smaller and in place sharing one character together as if they're close. And that word... What does that word mean? What does it mean when you write woman next to child? Well, you have the word for good. It means good. It's like sun, tree, east. Except it's what we think of when we see a mother and a child together. Woman, child, good. 
It's been that way for thousands of years and will be that way for as long as there are humans, woman, child. Good. It's a good thing. Every time I see that character, even when I'm reading quickly, there's a little part of me that thinks, yes, woman, child, good. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. I saw it with all my friends, how they needed their moms when we were kids and how their moms took care of them and me too, like my own mom did, of course. And those were good things. All those scraped knees being tended to, all those birthday parties being thrown, all those arts and crafts projects, all those meals, meal after meal after meal, all that driving to all those activities, all those bedtime stories, all that tucking in, and all those gentle kisses on the forehead. And now I see it with all my friends and their generation, my generation, as they become mothers, wonderful mothers, capable of anything, fierce mama bears and gentle mama moms. I can't believe how lucky I am to know these women, women I knew at 10 and 14 and 18 and 20, who are now raising children of their own, and my admiration is with them all. Woman, child, good. My heart would do a little bursting every single time. It's the fireworks again, bursting off the page, my mind going right there too. And then I'd move to the next character, and it might be sun and moon together, which is bright. Or it might be something else that reminded me of how it was to be on this earth, what it was like, what it meant, how fortunate I was to be alive, and how short my time would be, and how I needed to soak up every second. My mind needed to take it all in. I needed to be here for it, for every second of life. And poetry, Chinese poetry, and the language itself could help me drink it all in, all the ups and downs of it, all the ins and outs, all the hidden meanings, and all the meanings that aren't hidden at all. They're right there in front of you, so often overlooked. What's good? You could stretch pretty far to find it. You could go on a quest to find the, the greatest olive oil ever made in some remote Italian village. You can search for the obscure, for the hard to find, for the nearly unattainable. And then right there in front of you every day is the sunrise. Is the woman with the child sleeping on her breast or holding her hand as the two of them walk forward together? It's there. It's magic. It's good. And Cyan is the story of when that's pulled apart. Language itself is torn asunder. Woman, child, good. What happens when woman is torn from child? That's not even a word. That's not even depicted visually. Language has broken Language has fallen apart. Our human understanding cannot fathom it. We can only be reminded of how good it is when the woman and child are together. And from there, we have to take the leap to imagine the sorrow and resentment that arise when they are apart. Cyan lived that. She knew incredible suffering. And then it got worse. Then it got inhuman. We're in Sophie's Choice territory. How does a mother leave those two behind, knowing that the moment of her greatest reason for hope, the return to her home, is accompanied by her most vicious and punishing sorrow? Blue heaven, why have you done this? Why did you inflict this punishment on me? There is no way for happiness to ever return again. There is no good. Good 
is gone. That's Cyan. Whether she wrote these poems or not, she stands for me as the poet, just as Homer does, just as other great unattributed works do. It's the voice of time speaking to us, reminding us, in this case, of what humans have felt when they have been at their finest, when they've seen the heights of triumph and the very depths of despair, and when life has stretched to its most unendurable limits, stretched and stretched and stretched, stretched and snapped, and then returned. It's showing us what it's like to have good in a world where good no longer exists. It's showing us what it's like to die and still be alive. That's Cyan. Okay, there we go. Cyan, wow. I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> Probably got a little carried away. Well, what do you want me to do? This stuff matters to me, people. I'm trying my best. Okay, now, if you'd like to try your best to support the history of literature, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature or historyofliterature.com slash shop. I'm thinking about shutting the shop down. What do you think, people? The only thing I like about it is the virtual coffees. Well, once in a while, people buy mugs. That's nice, too, I guess. But the virtual coffees, is there must be an easier way. Let me know if you think there's an easier way. PayPal me or something. Anyway, we'll figure it out. We'll be back next week with some guests, hopefully. I have to say hopefully when I talk about future episodes, because guests cancel people sometimes. Not everyone can just drop everything and do a podcast about literature. Sometimes they have other things they have to do and they have to postpone. And so I hate to promise anything. I have guests lined up, but maybe they can't participate. And who knows what will happen to me in the meantime, too. So promises are... I don't want to have empty promises. All I can tell you is what's on the schedule, which is writ in water, as they say, or as Keats says anyway. Some guests, some Mike, some more me. Thursday, we will have another forgotten woman of literature. See if you can guess who's next. And the Thursday after that, we'll have our fourth for the month. And we will have other stuff, too. We are a part of the Podglomerate Network. You can learn more at www.thepodglomerate.com and LitHub Radio. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.